I like for you to know whenever I can really kind of give you a glimpse into it, where your ties are going, you know, how, how we're reaching people, who's being blessed. We know you're being blessed and we're blessing the community. But the radio, just so you, some of you don't know that we're on 42 stations. We're on in, um, amen. We're on in Chicago, 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 Pastor Jeff. That's what they call me, Pastor. Anyway, we're on in California. I don't know what they call me there. We're on in Washington. We're on all throughout Indiana. We're on in the Philippines. Uh, 42 stations. But one of the neat things is those radio waves go where we can't. And I got a letter from a prison. And I want to read you just a few sentences. Pastor Jeff, I sure am enjoying the teachings you've been sending and would very much like to continue them. I've been getting the series on unsung heroes. I enjoy your teaching on the radio also. I listen to it every day on Calvary radio station out of Valpo, Indiana. There are many here also that truly get blessed from your messages. Again, thank you so much for the word. Sincerely, Reggie. Now there is the word of God going into a prison behind prison walls. And we've gotten letters from many prisons and they're able to listen every single day. They listen and then they order the tapes and then they keep on listening. So when you give, you're giving that the Reggies of the world will be reached. And we're doing it together. Amen? It's gotten to the place where we never almost, it's rare we have a church service. We don't have visitors because of the radio message. So God is reaching through this church people all over this country. And one day we're going to be on two or three hundred stations. We will. I'm just saying that. Now, last week I began a series that I called America at the Tipping Point. It has caused no small stir. Overwhelmingly positive. Some people thinking I shouldn't have been talking about that. But that's okay. I'm going to show them today how they're not right. Um, I'm calling it America the tipping point because America is at the tipping point. We're in an unsustainable debt. We're sliding down into a moral abyss. And God needs to move again. And so I want to talk to you today about a message, uh, the topic, faith and politics do mix and always have. And they had better mix right now. So I want to read one verse and I want you to read it with me because that's that, what you see is what you get. That's it right there. So let's read it together. When the godly are in authority, the people do what? Rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, they groan. Notice the power of politics. That's a political verse. That's political. You can't get around it. Talk about who's ruling over you. Now, in Solomon's day, it was him, the king. It was a monarchy. But with us, it is a re republic. But we still have people ruling over us. It matters. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will speak to us and let this word go not only into the hearts of every person listening, but by radio and by video. Lord, show the truth and shine your truth. And where it really is true, change hearts. 
to embrace the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, perk up, you're going to need this today. You're going to need it November 6th. All right. Um, for some people, politics is a dirty word. And on a recent talk show, somebody commented that both candidates for president have made their faith a paramount issue in their political debates. And then the commentator of the talk show said, what a person believes really shouldn't matter. Can you get a hold of that one? What a person believes really shouldn't matter because religion and politics don't mix. Well, do you know what? The Bible says otherwise. The Bible would disagree with that statement. It matters greatly who's elected to rule over us, to pass our laws and set the moral tone of our nation. Because whatever a person's worldview is, whatever their values are, is going to determine what laws they pass. And whatever laws are passed, you and I get to live under them for rejoicing or for groaning. I don't know about you, but I like rejoicing better than groaning. Anybody with me? So what a politician believes, contrary to this poor talk show host's opinion, is crucial to the moral tone of a nation. Christian ignorance and apathy towards politics can be a very, very dangerous thing. We should be very knowledgeable about who's running for office, what they believe, and what kind of laws they're going to enact. And based on what they believe, that is what they're going to enact, for good or for bad, to glorify God or grieve God. To be ignorant of these things is to be bitten if you're not careful. The church is bitten when you're ignorant of these things. A nation is bitten when you're ignorant of these things. We ought to know who's running, what they believe, and what laws are going to pass based on what they believe. In 1883 in Allentown, New Jersey, a wooden Indian, the kind that is seen in front of cigar stores, was placed on the ballot for justice of the peace. The candidate was registered under the fictitious name of Abner Robbins. When the ballots were counted, Abner, the wooden Indian, won over incumbent Sam Davis by seven votes. You know how that happened? Ignorance of who was running. If you're not careful, a wooden Indian can be elected. A similar thing happened in 1938. The name Boston Curtis appeared on the ballot for a Republican committeeman from Wilton, Washington, and actually Boston Curtis was a mule. The town's mayor sponsored the animal to demonstrate that people know very little about the candidates. He proved his point. The mule won. Moral of the story, ignorance and elections have consequences. And we already know what they are, rejoicing or groaning, happiness or sorrow, God's blessing or God's curse. Do you know that in 08, over 100 million Americans did not vote? Millions of Christians did not vote. And as you also know, the Bible has addressed, always has, many political issues. 
If you look at the messages of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the prophets, major and minor, they all addressed the national sins in the nations they lived in. Of course, it was always Israel or Judah. They addressed the sins of the nation. They addressed the leaders of the nation. They spoke spiritual truth to secular power. And I want to tell you, it's no different now. If there was ever a day where spiritual Bible truth needs to be spoken to secular political power, we are in that day. We are in that day. Government was an issue that the prophets continuously dealt with. They spoke with kings. They counseled them according to God's word. They warned them of coming judgment on their land. Read Jeremiah. From youth to old age, he preached to Judah. Judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And they did not listen to him. And Jeremiah watched the people of Judah carried by in chains, starving, dying, carried into captivity for 70 long years because for decades they had refused to hear the word of God. Jeremiah had inserted himself right in the epicenter of political power and he spoke truth to that power and they never did listen. The prophets of God urged political rulers against certain policies. They prayed with and for them. You can read over and again where kings and Princes would find, would seek out the prophets for a word from God because they didn't know what to do. And those prophets would speak truth to power. It's funny how we're just fine with singing patriotic hymns about America in church. We will stand up and sing with the best of them, God bless America. But at the same time, people believe that politics and religion shouldn't mix at election time. We shouldn't be talking about it. Now here's the problem. Here's where it came from. It stems from the strong-held belief in separation of church and state. We've all heard that phrase. Separation of church and state. There's nobody in here that hasn't heard it. It has become ingrained in the heart and mind and soul of virtually every American. Separation of church and state. And that belief has been received and interpreted to mean that I, as a preacher, should not talk about political things. We heard that this week. I shouldn't have stood up last week and talked about political things. But I'm speaking truth to power. Uh, separation of church and state has led people to believe that church should remain neutral on political issues. But wait a minute. Political issues affect church people. And political issues are almost always moral issues. And moral issues are Bible issues. Separation of church and state says we, the church, should enclose ourselves in a little bitty bubble of spirituality off on the sidelines. And the state should exist in its own little bubble of politics. And the two should not meet. You're in your world, I'm in mine. We're having our little church over here. You're having your politics over there. Let's leave each other alone. Don't come preaching your, your religion to me because we're in different worlds. But Paul would not agree with that. Paul the Apostle did not agree with that. Do you know that he wrote to the Philippian church and said these words? The Christian brothers here with me greet you. All those who belong to Christ say hello. And most of all, those who live in Caesar's house. Caesar's house. Well, see, Paul was under arrest. And when they arrested Paul, they arrested a, a red-hot live coal 
who could not be quiet about Jesus Christ. And so when they arrested him and took him in to the, the close proximity of Caesar's house, Paul decided to infiltrate Caesar's government with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people started getting saved. People in Caesar's household started getting saved. And Caesar's house was the White House of Paul's day. And so he's got Christians from Caesar's house who have been converted to Christ under Paul's ministry. Paul decided, as long as I'm close, I'm going to speak truth, gospel truth, Jesus truth, Bible truth to political power. And people started getting saved in Caesar's house. He began to leaven the whole lump. He began to affect the culture of his day. He did not see the political hemisphere as a place that he should not go into and seek to influence. And church, that ought to be us. We ought to be looking not at Caesar's house, but at the White House and the Senate and the House of Representatives. We ought to be seeking to influence for Jesus Christ the power structures of America. Because guess what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so there is great power, not only in this room, but in the church of Jesus Christ. If you read about Paul's brilliant career as a preacher, as an evangelist, as an apostle, he also went before Festus, the Roman governor of Judea. He preached the gospel to Herod, the king of Judea. And he finally appealed his case all the way to the insane Nero who was crucifying Christians, burning them alive at the stakes. And Paul appealed his case to Caesar Nero and face-to-face met him and face-to-face looked him in the eye and preached Christ to him. He said, I'm not in some spiritual bubble. I'm not off on the sidelines. I'm in the middle of the game. I'm carrying the ball. I'm going to influence my world. And I'm not going to not get involved because Christ in me is the hope of glory. There's only one hope for Rome, he must have been thinking, and that's Christ. And I'm going to tell you, there's only one hope for America, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul believed in taking the gospel straight to the political, uh, political powers of his day, and so should we. So-called separation of church and state is found nowhere in the founding of America. It's not there. Our DNA is gospel. Our DNA is faith in God. Our DNA is Bible truth. That's what made America great. That's what it was launched in. History shows us that God, His Word, and His Son, Jesus Christ, were foundational parts of our government. Think about that. Because now you can't get them in there. But back then, there's a good reason that in God we trust is on our currency. And that the Pledge of Allegiance contains the phrase, One Nation Under God. And that the Declaration of Independence speaks about the laws of nature and of nature's God. That came from the Founding Fathers, who we're being told by historical revisionists today were all secular deists and not Christians. And that's a lie. Can I tell you that most of the Founding Fathers were church-going, Christ-worshipping, God-believing people. And it's all in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Let me pop today the myth 
of separation of church and state. Where in the world did that phrase ever come from? This phrase, separation of church and state, was originally coined in the United States from a private letter, not a public letter, a private letter, that Thomas Jefferson, our third president, wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. Now, why did he do that? Because they had fled England and the tyranny of King George. They had come to America, 13 colonies at the very beginning. They had come to America to worship God freely, to have a Bible for themselves, to meet when they wanted to meet, worship the way they wanted to worship, talk about it the way they wanted to talk about it, structure their church government the way they wanted to structure it according to the Word of God. And they began to be concerned as the American government was evolving that laws might be passed that would infringe on their religious liberty. Because for them, they had given their lives on the line for religious liberty. So this came to Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson wrote them a private letter. And in that private letter, here's what he promised. He promised that not that God would be kept or that the church would be bound by the government, but that God would be free through his church, that God would be blessing his church in such a way that they were not bound to the government. In other words, he wrote in his letter he would keep the government out of the church, not the church out of the government. That's what he was saying. He said, I'm going to make sure that you don't end up under religious tyranny like you were in England. I promise you the government will not infringe on your liberty. I promise you you will be free to worship God. We will not pass laws. So he was not telling the church, don't be involved in government. He was telling the government, stay out of the church. That's where separation of church and state came from. That's all it ever meant. But unfortunately, this phrase has been hijacked by anti-church liberals, like the ACLU, the Against Christian Liberties Union. In order to muzzle the godly influence of believers in the political arena, because there is nobody more influential than the church when the church realizes who she is and steps forward with the truth of Christ. There is no one more powerful than the church. It is more powerful than a nuclear bomb. Listen, a praying church is more influential and culture-changing and impactful than all the nuclear bombs put together. A praying church. The founding fathers of the United States never meant for the church's influence to be kept out of the political process. Never. They never intended that the church would be silent about the burning, pivotal issues of the day. That's why we should not be silent about abortion or the militant homosexual movement and not yield to political correctness that tells us if we speak about it, we're haters. We are not haters. We are lovers. And because we are lovers, we are truth-tellers. Let me drop a little bomb today. Speaking of bombs, if Christians and preachers and the church had not involved themselves in politics, America would not exist. We wouldn't have the United States. You wouldn't be here today if church and state had not been mixed. We owe a great debt to our forefathers who were Christians who inserted their beliefs into the political system. There would be no land of the free. There would be no home of the brave. We would be somewhere else, no, more than likely under some kind of totalitarian dictatorship, which is what most of history has experienced. We are unique, a voting republic 
where you have a say in the matter is completely and totally unique. Let me go back in history for a moment. The familiar group known as the Pilgrims was the first to arrive here. They were Christians fleeing Europe in order to escape religious persecution. They wanted a land where they could worship God freely without coming under the gun of King George and his tyranny. The pilgrims were followed to New England by the Puritans, who created a Bible-based commonwealth, several of them, towns, commonwealths, communities founded for the common good. And those commonwealths practiced the same sort of representative government as their church governments. In other words, they patterned their civil government after their church government. So the way they ran their politics rooted itself in Bible truth. Those governmental covenants, laws, and rules became the foundation for our Constitution. Our Constitution is rooted in Bible truth. Not secularism, not atheism, not agnosticism, Bible truth. Catch that. I want you to listen. The way their churches were structured provided the blueprint for the representative government later enshrined in the Constitution that is the most brilliant political document ever written. America's history is saturated with the influence of Christians and the Bible. The city of New Haven, Connecticut in the state of Massachusetts was founded by Puritans. Roger Williams founded the colony of Rhode Island based on the principle of freedom of conscience he got from the Bible. Pennsylvania was established by William, William Penn as a Quaker colony, a religious Christian group. Maryland was a haven for Catholics that fled from Protestant England. Do you know that all but two of the 108 universities founded in America were Christian? So 106 out of 108 of the original universities were founded in, rooted in, sprung from Christianity. This includes the first university, Harvard, the Ivy League, where the student handbook listed the following as rule number one. What I'm about to read to you, if you were going to go to school at Harvard, you had to read this and agree with it and sign on the dotted line. Here's rule number one. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That's Harvard. But then they get theological, and it's rich. It goes on to say, which is eternal life? What's eternal life? To know God and Jesus Christ. And therefore to lay Jesus Christ as the only foundation for our children to follow the moral principles of the Ten Commandments, end quote. So to go to school at Harvard, I had to sign and say, all right, Jesus is going to be the center of my life. He's going to be the cornerstone of everything that I do. And when I have a family, they're going to be taught according to Jesus Christ and the Ten Commandments because that's where all true morality springs. What has happened to us? The founding fathers themselves envisioned a government that would promote and encourage Christianity. In 1777, the Continental Congress, one year after signing the Declaration of Independence, voted to spend $300,000, which back then was millions of dollars, 
for us today. They voted to spend $300,000 to purchase Bibles, which were to be distributed throughout the 13 colonies. Can you imagine our Congress meeting right now? Can you imagine them having a session and deciding to set aside millions of dollars to buy millions of Bibles to send them all throughout the United States of America? Can you imagine what the ACLU would do with that? They would have a heart attack before they could even pick up a phone. And you know what? Who cares what the ACLU thinks? Because it would bless. In 1782, the United States Congress declared, quote, The Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Holy Bible for use in all schools. So when you went to school, you had your Congress had approved that this book, the Bible, the source of all truth, the cornerstone of all true education, would be at every desk. And they memorized and learned the Holy Scriptures. And do we wonder why America was a blessed nation. We honored God. We honored Christ. We taught our children the Word of God. What's happened to us now? We've taken the Ten Commandments off the wall. We've taken prayer out of school. And you can mark it. You can track it. You can graph it. You can look at it. From the 1960s to now, the schools have only descended into an abyss because you can't kick God out without something else coming in. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so when you kick God out, something else walks in, and it's never good. We need a return to the Bible. We need a return to the God of our fathers. We need a great awakening to happen in America again, to bring us back to sanity. And I want you to notice, think with me, do you see anywhere in what I'm reading to you any notion at all of separation of church and state? Do you know that in America's beginning... There were 13 colonies and thousands of colonial pastors in those colonies consistently taught the principles of freedom and liberty from the pages of Scripture. They stood in their pulpits and they talked about freedom from tyranny, how man should not be under the iron glove of a dictator. They preached freedom and liberty and and their messages, their sermons were the inspiration, I believe, that launched the birth of this nation. They thundered warnings from their pulpits about the dangers of a government being so tyrannical you can't move, you have no decision making. A government that becomes so big, there's no more liberty left. When the Revolutionary War finally broke out, the British government feared the influence of pastors and churches so much that they burned churches to the ground as a matter of policy. Can't shut them up, we'll burn them to the ground. We don't want their voices to be heard. Why? Because, I'll say it again, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Christ in the church is the hope of glory. And there's no greater power than a red hot church that is preaching truth and standing for righteousness. Nothing can stop it. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you read back in those times, there were preachers everywhere, pastors everywhere. And as tension between the American colonies and England increased, so did the red-hot sermons from America's pulpits. One preacher named Jonathan Mayhew delivered a sermon that he called, Resistance to Tyranny is a Christian Duty. Listen to that. Resistance to Tyranny 
is a duty of Christians. In his message, he reasoned that resistance to tyranny was a glorious Christian duty and that they should not in any way, shape, or form in the new America submit to any kind of governmental tyranny. And his powerful message is credited with offering moral justification for political and military resistance against England's tyranny as they were breaking free from England and establishing their own nation. Most ministers of that day didn't believe in separation of church and state, and they took the same position during the conflict with Britain. After shots and blood were exchanged at Lexington and Concord in 1775, one year before the declaration was signed, open rebellion and war with Britain became inescapable. And so on January 27, 1776, a Virginian Lutheran preacher named John Mullenberg read to his congregation from Ecclesiastes 3, stating, there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. He concluded his sermon saying, now is the time to fight. And when he said that, he stripped off his black clerical robe Right behind the pulpit and beneath it was the uniform of a continental officer. And Pastor Muhlenberg became General Muhlenberg, and he raised a regiment of volunteers who became known as the Black Robe Brigade. Many clergymen soon left their churches, picked up a musket, and headed for war. The love of God and the love for liberty were knitted together in their hearts and minds. And I ask you again today, separation of church and state? Where would we be if those pastors had kept that black robe on and said, well, we really shouldn't be involved and we don't want to offend anybody and Gee, golly whiz, let's just kind of have our little spiritual bubble over here and shazam. It's not for us to speak up because we're just milk toast little Christians over here that aren't supposed to do anything about this kind of thing. And let's just leave that up to the politicians and let's just kind of sit back and pray and see what happens. It's the way we see it today. There are thousands of churches that won't preach a message like this. I don't understand it. Because you know what? I can say with Pastor Mullenberg, it's time to fight. It's time to stand up. It's time to make our voice heard. And do you know that without the church's involvement in politics, many of the great redeeming victories of history would never have happened? It was a Christian politician named William Wilberforce that applied Christian principles to government to abolish the evil slave trade in England. William Wilberforce was elected to Parliament in 1780. He was lost. He didn't know Christ when he became a politician and won an office in Parliament. Five years later, he got saved under the ministry of John Newton. You know his song more than his name. He wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And John Newton met William Wilberforce and led him to Christ and began to talk to him about the evil slave trade of their day. And he said, William, is there anything you can do in Parliament as a politician who knows Christ? Is there anything you can do to have a law passed that ends it? And then Newton said, I want you to go study slavery, William. Go out there and look at it. Study it. Investigate it. Tell me what you find. And Wilberforce did that. Came back and he wrote these words. So enormous, 
so dreadful, so irremediable, did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for the abolition of this evil trade. A trade founded in iniquity must be abolished. And he put his hand to the plow. Influenced by the church, representing the church, it took him 20 long years, 20 long years, fighting the belief that slavery was justified. He was fiercely opposed by the slave traders who had powerful allies in Parliament. One man named Lord Melbourne, who would be right at home in our day, complained about this, saying, quote, intrusion of religion into politics should not be happening. And then he said, things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade public life. In other words, William Wilberforce, go into your religious bubble and don't get into my bubble because we shouldn't be mixing faith with politics. But thank God, William Wilberforce did not listen. With the help of Christians throughout England and being ostracized and persecuted and treated like a leper in Parliament year after year, Wilberforce eventually succeeded in convincing enough people that it wasn't justified. The Bible was totally against it. And in 1807, Parliament voted to abolish the slave trade. Thank God Wilberforce did not believe in separation of church and state. And what about Martin Luther King? A Baptist pastor. A young man one of the greatest orators of the 20th century. I'd listen to his I Have a Dream speech because I like to listen to great oratory. He said, I can't stand the sight of this segregation any longer. We've got to do something about this. And Martin Luther King, a pastor, a Baptist pastor, took to the streets and took his case, and he spoke truth to power. And he said, this segregation and this racism is wrong. Different bathrooms, different water fountains, that's a disgrace. This ought not be. And he marched, and he went to jail, and he paid a price. But thank God he won, and the Civil Rights Act was passed. Why? Because a Christian pastor spoke truth to power. I want to close with this verse. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said, let me tell you who you are here. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Let me tell you who you are here. You are the salt of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? If you've lost your saltiness, you've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage, trampled underfoot by men. Jesus is telling us, I've put you here, salt when you shake it on, like say meat, it keeps it from decay. He said, I take the church and I salt you all through the culture to keep it from decay. But if you go out there and you don't talk about my truth and you don't share my, uh, my reality and you don't talk about my teachings and you don't, you don't salt the culture with the truth of the scriptures and speak truth to power, then what's going to happen to you is they won't take you seriously anymore. And they'll cast you out and trample you underfoot. And that's what's happening to a lot of denominations today. But there is another group of people. I tell you, there's another, another huge section of the church that is basically saying, I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to lay down. 
I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to worship an idol. I am going to stand up. I'm going to speak up. I'm going to let the truth of Christ be known. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm not going to be ashamed of him. I'm going to stand up and tell them what has changed me. I am going to speak truth to power, and I'm going to be a part of salting this culture with the reality of Jesus Christ until change comes. Amen. Until change comes. Amen. 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 Give God glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Stand up with me, would you? Jesus made it clear. Let your influence be felt in every nook and cranny of your world. Salt the world with the good taste of godliness. Light up the world with the light of his love. Paul wrote to Timothy, and I'm closing with this verse. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and a sound mind. So do not be ashamed of Jesus. If churches all over the country would stand up today, there would be such a tsunami wave of God's presence and glory. It would begin to smash down the strongholds that have gotten a grip on our culture. Now, Friday, we started praying for our country, the 28th of September, as a church. We've joined, last time Kathy and I looked at the web, just shy of 100,000 churches are joining hands from now through November 6th to pray for God to give us a great awakening. So I'm going to ask us, can we take hands across? And I don't want to embarrass you. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable. But there is such faith and power in this room and we don't want to preach it and not do it. If my people are called by my name, we'll humble themselves and pray. Father, we humble ourselves and we pray. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the 50 million people that are not here who were aborted. Forgive us for the flood of pornography. Forgive us, Lord, for a debt that nobody can sustain. Forgive us for putting our seal of approval on perversion. Lord, we ask you, have mercy. For Jesus' sake. And for the glory of God, move in a great awakening. In this country, we pray again. It's happened before, and you can do it again. We ask you, sweep this land from coast to coast with the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit. Let it rain your power. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. If you believe he heard that, praise him. Go ahead and just thank him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right. A couple of quick things. One, don't forget to sign up for a restaurant. We need your beautiful voice or your joyful noise next week. 